Welcome to Bible Over Brews. Deep thoughts fermented over time and text. We're coming at you tonight. Gumby. Hey, what's happening? Steve. Hey. Mike. Ahoy. We've got Brian Godawa. And I'm Crew Juice. So, Brian, about those flames. Well, we are. I am safe and sound in the city of Los Angeles. You know, the city doesn't have any issues with fire and never has. Um, so most of them are all up north. Uh, you know, Ventura. So it's about a good hour up north. You know. Oh, cool. There's several of them, and they're all about an hour to an hour and a half away. Not See, a problem for me, but for some of my friends, though. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Well, our thoughts go out to them. How uh, how have the holidays treated you so far? Uh, okay. You know, November and December is a big time for me because I have to do you know, Black Friday advertising and marketing and because I'm basically, you know, I'm a self-published author. So, uh, I have to do all my own marketing, all my own sales and promotions and all that kind of stuff. So, and then of course, Chris, some Chris, a little bit of a Christmas sale, which is coming up actually. Um, I'm going to be putting my books on sale for a few days, uh, right before Christmas, you know, um, last minute Christmas sale, right? So anyway, so these two months are a lot of marketing stuff. Um, so I don't get to write a lot, which there you go. I was wondering why you're like, your heads are way down at the bottom of the screen. It's like my dad, when my dad uses his, his Facebook, you can only see the top of his head. And I'm like, dad, turn the, turn the phone down. <laughs> those posters that you have up, those look sweet. Yeah, they are really cool. In fact, I got one right behind me. That's the Nuffling one. Oh, and awesome. Chronicles nice. of Nephilim. And I just got the new Chronicles of the Apocalypse, which I haven't um, put on into a poster yet. So, I mean, uh, I haven't framed it yet, So, but I will. And I'll probably be replacing my Braveheart poster with my Chronicles of the Apocalypse poster. <laughs> what? what? Awesome. Mel Gibson's coming down? I, there's no more room, man. I've got to take something down, and i got to, you know, inspire myself with myself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. I would. No, it's uh, I, I I reposted that on uh, on Facebook. They were just they were too cool not to repost. Cool, man. Thanks. <laughs> hey, my pleasure. So we're trying out this uh, this holiday bourbon. There we go. <laughs> From uh, Cleveland Whiskey Company, and it smells incredible. Yeah, mm. you smell the nutmeg. Ready? Ready. Oh. That is awesome. Wow. Right? It's uh, bourbon. Mine is, I don't know if you guys have the same I got, but you sent me, which I'm eternally grateful, and therefore you are my favorite podcast I've ever been on. <laughs> you sent me a Christmas gift for the audience. Uh, bourbon whiskey finished with black cherry wood. Oh, okay. And uh, I really like it. I like that black cherry wood. I'm not a big connoisseur. I'm still kind of a you know, new at it, um, but I can already tell this is one of my favorites. So, oh. yeah. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Big shout out to uh, the Cleveland Whiskey Company yep. and uh, Seize the Vine. And once again, I have to thank, I have to thank Vince from Seize the Vine for uh, bringing that over to you. Yeah, cool. So. And Andrew down at the Cleveland Whiskey Company who didn't let me get arrested. He stood up for me. <laughs> <laughs> I set off their alarms. <laughs> yeah. Funny story. <laughs> <laughs> but I hear you got a free tour out of it. I did. It was really cool. Yeah. Just just the thing to drink when we're starting to talk about Nephilim Watchers Giants. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. 
This the, is strong. Yeah. Yes. This is yeah. this is not for the uh, faint of heart for mm. sure. The flavor's robust though. It's it's incredible. Yeah. Great flavor. Yeah, it is. But mm. uh, really smooth. So you you got to watch it. Oh man. <laughs> Almost too smooth because yeah yeah yeah. Most most have that nice burning sensation going down. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. one is definitely on the smoother side. Yeah. Yep. I think the spices kind of cool it down a little bit. <laughs> which is nice. So. Yeah, I'll try some ice in the next next one I have after we're done with the show. Awesome. Uh, I drank <laughs> like you did. I went straight up too, so <laughs> Yeah, I, I really I do enjoy the uh straight up. There's just something about the warmth that mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know, when you when you cool it down, I do like drinking cold drinks normally. But cooling it down, it sort of takes away a little bit of the uh, the zip, a little bit of the the. Well, obviously, you know, if you're uh, diluting it a little bit with the ice, but I mean, even apart from that, the coldness sort of dulls the taste a bit, you know. So sometimes I like that, but mostly I just enjoy it without, just straight up. Well, here you go. Here's in line with that. Here's some cool trivia for you, James Bond. Always drank a vodka martini shaken and not, not, stirred. Stirred. not stirred. Yeah. Do you know why? Because vodka no. is the most prevalent of all the liquors in the world. So, where, um, so wherever he could go, he could drink it. Build that, okay. build that resistance up, right? Two, shaken, not stirred, because it would dilute his a little more than his opponent that he's with. Oh, <laughs> very cool. Is it, was that in like a James Bond novel or just fan fan uh, fan info? It's uh, I, I think it's just part of the canon lore. Oh, okay. It's more so. that scary info that you know that scares us. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you know that? I told you I'm the king of useless knowledge. <laughs> so um, I've been start. I started diving into your uh, your remnant rescue of the elect. So, yeah. And uh, as you know, I I like to grab the audio book so that while I'm driving, I can also uh, listen to it. Now, did you get the, did you read Tyrant already? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Because I was going to say, you know, the the Apocalypse series is definitely, you know, you want to read them in sequence because they're very highly integrated. So, yeah. No, I I loved Tyrant. It was great. Cool. Um, Love. Oh man, wait till you get the next one, Resistant. Oh, it's gonna be good. <laughs> even better. Even even better. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. And I love how they all tie together too, because it's like you know there are some characters from the Chronicles of the Nephilim series in there. So yes, I love how they 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 tie together. You know, which will tie together this talk tonight, right? Because. The uh, the angelic uh, the you know the angelic watchers the uh, authorities over the nations uh, do show up in Chronicles of the Apocalypse and the, my premise in that series uh, my theological premise of all my both writing is um, that uh, you know the Deuteronomy thirty two worldview that says uh, you know at the Tower of Babel basically in Deuteronomy thirty two eight through ten it says that in fact I'll, I'll uh, Get that one. Where was that? The allotment. Okay. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Inheritance. That's a key word in the Bible, right? Because yep. what was the inheritance of Israel? The land was the inheritance. So land was the key thing in the ancient world. 
Still is today, isn't it? Right? <laughs> right. Yes. So anyway, the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. That's scholars, uh, you know, all acknowledge that's basically the Tower of Babel when he divided the languages and divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And these sons of God, in, in, you know, I believe, are divine angelic beings from God's heavenly host. In particular, these ones are fallen. And so, in other words, he's placing the Gentile nations who do not worship Yahweh, he's placing them under the authority of these, you know, territorial watchers, basically. But the Lord's portion, it says, is his people Jacob, his allotted heritage. So this notion of allotment and inheritance is intimately connected all throughout the, the Bible. Uh, and, and the idea is that God allots these territories to these, uh, uh, you know, basically the watchers. But in specific, these fallen sons of God. Why? Because they're Gentiles who refuse to worship God. And he gives them over, like Romans 1 says, he gives them over to their lusts because they refuse to worship him. But, he, but he's going to keep Jacob which is the you know the, one of the universal symbols of the Israel right yep. as his allotted heritage, and so that that's sort of the premise of my spiritual story that's going through both the Chronicles of the Nephilim and the Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And the reason why is because, in a way, the Chronicles of the Apocalypse is a is the sequel and uh, you know the the final ending of the Chronicles of the Nephilim. Uh, but you can read it separately because it's about uh, a, t a separate time period. But what you mentioned is is going on here. I have, you know, not only Satan or, you know, biblically he's called the Satan, not necessarily a name Satan, right? The Satan means the adversary. And he goes by various names in the Bible and also in other ancient Jewish literature. You know, whether it's Diablos the devil, right? Or uh, in other Jewish literature, he's called Mastema. Yeah. Um, he's called hmm. Belial in the Dead Sea Scrolls, meaning the the wicked one, um, and you know. So he's and of course Nachash, which I would argue he Nachash is the serpent of the garden, yep. and so he goes by these various names, and um, in various different cultures he has a different name. So he of course goes throughout all the series, but also, you know, my premise that I start out in. Um, Noah Primeval, the first book of Chronicles of the Nephilim, I talk about this allotment, and the premise that I give is uh, that the God, you know, we know in history that all the nations worshipped various gods, all the Gentile nations, right, worshipped false gods. And if you look through history, you know, they all had pantheons. You know, in ancient Sumer, you would have um, Anu and Enlil, and all these various deities, and each city had its own patron deity, because everybody in that time period believed, not just the Jews, everyone believed that there was a god over their territory, right? Right. Uh, and as well as in Canaan, right? We have, um, you know, El was the sort of the father god over everything, but he was sort of a abstract, removed deity. The real god who ruled everything was Baal, and Baal had 70 sons of, of El, and that corresponds to the 70 nations of Genesis 11, right? Or Genesis 10, I think it is. And so um, so there's this commonality between them. And, of course, then there's Asherah and Ishtar and all that, all these various deities. And particularly in Canaan, we had Dagon, right, of the Philistines. So every sort of every clan had their own tribal deity that they worshipped. And this fits very closely with the biblical notion that 
God gives these, you know, got these these Gentile nations over to the under the authority of these territorial spirits, if we can call them that, right? And my premise of my series is: What if the the ancient gods of the ancient or the gods of the ancient world that we know about, you know, that they worship Dagon and Baal and stuff? What if they had demonic reality? They were real beings, but they weren't gods. They were these fallen sons of God from God's heavenly council masquerading as the gods of the nations. And that's sort of my my fictional what if, but it kind of has theological um, you know, relevance because there are many places that get in, in the even in the Old Testament where it gives this notion that the gods of the pagan de- nations are demonic. So, for instance, um, you know, the classic, of course, I, I, I've already mentioned that uh, Deuteronomy 32, and, and that's where you, you get this allotment of territories and, and, and such. And then in Daniel, later on, Daniel 10, I think it is, you know, we read about the Watchers and how the Watchers are the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Greece. These are the, sort of, the, the biblically, it's the heavenly kings, so to speak, Right. The, the spiritual kings that are over and connected to the earthly kings. So every time that the ancient world uh, saw a war occurring, for instance, they believed that there was also war in heaven. At the same time, there's war on earth. And the Bible does this as well, right? Yeah. Um, but So if you go back to De- Deuteronomy 32, if I can find it here. Um, or, okay. So it talks about that allotment, and God allots these territories. And then further on down in the passage, it says when when you know Israel goes into Canaan and they start sacrificing to the false gods, he says they sacrificed to demons that were not God. The Hebrew word there is shadim. It's more like saying demonic entities more than anything. To gods they had never known. And then in Deuteronomy 32, 43, it says, uh, oh, that's just talking about the gods again. Um, I'm trying to find the, the demonic thing. Um, oh, so later in Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 through 21, God, you know, Moses is telling the people, says, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away, bow down and worship and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. There it is, that language again, right? So he's he's saying, I'm allotting these false gods to you. You're going to worship them. And in the ancient world, they, they uh, as well, the Hebrews as well, had this sort of, they used the notion of heavenly host had two meanings. One, it meant the stars, the sun, and the moon, literally, to, that they see in the sky. But they also believed that those were either representative or literally divine entities of some right. kind that also looked down upon earth and, and affected the world. And so they use them interchangeably. And so sometimes the Bible is talking about the heavenly host as in the sun, moon, and stars, literally. But many times, you know, w- what we don't see, because we have our modern scientific notion, right? We see heavenly hosts and we think, oh, yeah, that's the sun, moon, and stars. But when they use that term, it, ought, it meant to them both the sun, moon, and stars that they could see as well as the deities that they represented. And the proof of that is God himself even uses the term heavenly host to define his divine counsel of, you know, sons of God. You know, the, it says 10,000 times 10,000 surrounds his, his throne, God's heavenly host, right? Yeah. So there's this term that's going on there, and it starts out in the Old Testament. 
And so what I find fascinating is, uh, you know, is that if that's true, then there's this allotment going on. And it makes sense because it makes sense that, that God's dark, er, uh, the darkness that blinds the minds of the Gentile nations in all of history, right? Uh, and God just focused on Israel, right, for his purposes until Messiah came. And so my series, my Chronicles of the Nephilim series ends with Jesus coming. And, um, but then the Chronicles of the Apocalypse picks up from that. And, and explores how the book of Revelation was relevant to the first century. But it also is my, argu- my theological argument that I believe that when Messiah came, he literally took back the land deeds, right? It's like, okay, you, you, know, no, you no longer have the, 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 the deeds to the, these nations, these lands. Now Messiah, of course, when Messiah is resurrected and ascended, that's his, you know, his kingship, right? He's, he's installed on the David's throne in heaven, and he is, you know, enthroned over all. And it's, you know, Ephesians, I think it is, says, you know, he leads, he leads in triumph, triumphal access in his ascension. He leads his, um, his captured warriors, the the notion of the triumphal, um, parade in in the roman world and in all the ancient world actually again everyone believed this was that whenever uh enemies were they would use a triumphal parade through the city with their leaders dead or alive they drag them through the streets if they're dead but if they're alive they would just you know put them on carts and you know strap them down and torture them or whatever and they would (laughs) you know roll them through the cities to as the as a proclamation of we've triumphed over them right um and of course, the Bible uses the same language of Jesus that that he his ascension was a triumphal access over these powers, and you know the principalities and powers phraseology in the New Testament. That's what he's talking about. That we fight not against flesh and blood. Don't worry. The earthly powers are not your ultimate enemies. It's the heavenly powers behind them. Again, they're connected. Um, those are the ones that we're, we battle against that Paul says, right? But at the same time, it says Jesus triumphed over them. So he basically whooped their butts, took back the title, the land deeds. And that's when, you know, that's why I believe the new covenant is actually the ultimate pinnacle of this triumph over these, these, you know, entities and winning, you know, Christ in his, uh, death and resurrection, uh, the Christus Victor motif, as we, we talk about it as Christ's victory over the powers. And um, it is ultimately, it w- it began at the cross, right, spiritually and truly. Um, all this stuff occurred at the cross, and the new covenant was instituted in his blood. But God is not a God of philosophy. He is a God of history. And God always verifies in history what he does spiritually. So the new covenant was inaugurated with the blood of Christ, but because the old testament, the old covenant uh, incarnation, the temple was still in existence, it it was a transition period until that temple was destroyed. And when that temple was destroyed, the ultimately the the incarnation of the old covenant, God destroyed the old covenant forever, replaced it with the new covenant, and that destruction of the temple in A.D. seventy of the Jerusalem temple is the historical vindication of the consummation of the new covenant and Jesus Christ gives the kingdom into the hands of his body on earth 
and then then we go forth from there, uh, you know, to preach the gospel to all creation. And that's why now the bl- the minds of the Gentiles are no longer technically blinded by this, you know, by the God of this world, and they can they can come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the that's kind of the big theological picture that I'm telling, and that's why all, all my series are connected. And so I have those gods of the nations. I got them from the whole series of Chronicles and Nephilim, and they come up in um, Chronicles of the Apocalypse as well. And this is a, you know, I, I come from a, uh, from a Reformed, very traditional Reformed background. So, you know, my theology is not, I'm not, you know, one of these goofy new evangelicals with whatever <laughs> wacky new beliefs that they come up with, you know. Why do you look I'm, at me I when don't... you say that, Brian? why do you look at me when you say that (laughs) uh but you know because there's a lot out there right i mean you know there's a lot of goofy things and and such and but my point is is yet nevertheless i think we all have to be uh i think open to uh the new things that we can discover from the scriptures that you know, uh, that we didn't know before. And I think a lot of this is rooted in what I call, what I consider to be a movement in evangelicalism as well, that, that, uh, of a, of a, of a renewed appreciation and pursuit of understanding the Bible in its ancient Near Eastern and Hebrew context, instead of reading it through our own eyes of our own culture, we need to understand what did it, Excuse me. What did it mean to the culture that it was written to, and what were their languages? What was their language? What was their poetry? What did their imageries mean to them, not yeah. to us? You know, when it talks about yeah. the you know locusts from the pit of the abyss with heads like a human and all this stuff. You know, not oh, that's a cobra helicopter because that's how we would. That's how an ancient <laughs> man might describe something he a cobra helicopter that he didn't understand. No, no, they had these symbols where they're rich with these symbols all throughout the Old Testament. So you, you go back and you study what that meant in the context of their ancient culture. And a lot of times the way that we, the way that we understand some of these weird anomalies that we don't understand in the Bible is by finding them in other concurrent cultures, whether it's Canaan or Mesopotamia or Egypt or what have you. And we can find them having similar phraseology or similar images and that sort of exp- uh, that 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 illuminates what what it meant to them in that time period, if yeah. if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Or the Akkadian, <laughs> mm-hmm. or the Akkadian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, um, the Scorpion King was Akkadian. The what? The Scorpion, Scorpion King, King was. <laughs> yeah, because the uh, the, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh actually had um, the the Scorpion men that had bottoms like scorpions and top like human beings. You know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Sumer was the supposedly the most ancient culture that we know of, and then out of that in Mesopotamia, and then out of that came Akkadian, and then Babylonian and well, such. How, so, how do you feel about? Because I relate like the first ten chapters of Genesis, for example. I believe it was written later, um, and a lot of scholars do believe it was written later. Uh, I think it was written during the Babylonian exile. Myself, the motifs are uh, are more compatible with the Babylonian exile. Than they are with early Egyptian uh, culture. Yeah, so, yeah, that is that's the that is a uh, a very common belief now. Um, I do believe that there's some truth to it. Um, I actually there's a really great little book written by a couple of guys out of um, well, I won't say where they're out of, um, but it's called "In the Beginning We Misunderstood," and it's a book that actually makes the argument that there's more Egyptian connections to Egyptian. Uh, creation language in Genesis 
than there is to Babylonian. Hmm. Um, and so I actually think they make some good arguments. I personally think, while I don't think it was constructed entirely in the Babylonian exile, I do think Moses actually uh, began it and wrote you know, a good portion of it. I don't know how much, but I do acknowledge that if you, if you look at the history of the text, you can't deny that there's editing going on. And um, my belief is, you know, the, the inspiration of scripture is God's providential hand in producing it over time. It, he doesn't dictate it. It's not, you know, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but he, so, so therefore I have no problem with the fact that there might be editing and, and, and growth of the scriptures over time. Um, and so I do believe that there, there probably was some Babylonian influence yeah. Uh, certainly on, on a lot of the writing, but, yeah. um, yeah. So well, I, I, I like, and, and, and that's the thing, that's the thing I, I think a lot of mm. Christians are afraid to address because they feel that that oh, will, yeah. you know, yeah. pull them into liberalism and yeah. then they won't believe the Bible. Especially evangelicals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think <laughs> it adds credence more than anything else because people are always like, well, no, no, this or that. Or, but if you look at it, I think it adds credence to the fact that the Sumerians and, and, and there's stuff in Akkadian and there's that all show deluge stories, right? I think it adds yeah. credence to the fact that all the Mesopotamian people have deluge stories. Uh, yeah. I don't think it goes, I don't think it counteracts against it. I think it adds to it. Agreed. Agreed. And like I said, you know, um, in my book, God Against the Gods, that's more of a theological book, and it also is, it sort of embodies my aesthet- one of my aspects of my aesthetic theory, which is my, my understanding of how to, how to pursue God and understand God through beauty. Um, well, in that book, I write that I don't have a problem with them using common language that's common to Canaanites, for instance, or Egyptians or Babylonians, um, because, for example... You know there are uh, there are many examples in the Old Testament where, uh, you know, we see God described differently in the in the uh, Exodus and before in Egypt. But as soon as he comes, they come into the land of Canaan. We see him described differently as a god of storm and thunder and rain, which is not how he was described in Egypt. You know, there might be thunder and such, but fire and such, but. Um, and what you see is there's a lot of commonality of language with the god of, of Canaan, Baal, the storm god. They use the same language of Yahweh, Yahweh drinking up the rivers, conquering the sea dragon Leviathan, right? Um, and this is all stuff that, that Canaanites used of Baal. Yeah. And, and so the, you know, the, the uh, Christians who are hung up on, you know, their, their, Quite frankly, their modern unbiblical notion of inerrancy, that, that they think everything has to be hyper-literal all the time. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they're, that, that just, they can't accept that. And then the Christians who do acknowledge it, it's like, you know, there's different ways to understand that. And, and mostly, you know, in the liberal world, they conclude, yeah, see, therefore, uh, there was no, you know, there's no such thing as Yahweh. The Jews just worshiped Baal, and then they just changed his name to Yahweh, and it evolved, that kind of thing, <laughs> evolving monotheism out of polytheism. But that's not necessarily the only way of understanding it, because in fact, if you are if you are an alien culture conquering another culture, it would make sense that you're going to use their language and of your own gods. In other words, you're going to say, Baal's not the storm god who gives you rain. Yahweh is the storm god who gives you rain. Rain. So it's a very mm-hmm. polemical use of the same kind of imagery. Just like nowadays, I'm a Christian, and if I write a vampire movie, 
you know, I'm going to invest it with my own worldview as a Christian, right? And and it's going to be different than, than what you see on other vampire movies, right? I'm using the same imagery, but oh. I'm investing it with my own theological meaning and purpose, if that makes sense. Well, and, and, and Rice did a little bit of that, right? Yeah, she yeah. sure did. So, Brian, <laughs> would you say that uh, as we as we look at the scriptures, to really what be most important would be to understand the culture that which it was written in, and what we have a tendency to do in the in now is that we we have a tendency to take our twenty first century knowledge and put that culture into those scriptures, which is which just totally takes it out of context. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I mean, there's so many examples of this. And, and, and the more that I learn about the ancient Near Eastern context, the Bible, the more I see how alien a lot of the Bible is to the way we think. Yeah. And that's okay, because God's communicating to them in their culture, and it's up to us to figure that out, which means that this notion that, you know, well, it, if the Bible's God's word, <laughs> then a, a five-year-old can understand it. Well, who says? That's your... That's your prejudicial assumption that if God's going to communicate to us, I think he would make it so simple that even a five-year-old could understand it. Because that's how God would be, right? Who says? That, that, that's what's assumed in a lot of evangelical worlds. But the truth is, is no, we need teachers and, and you know, uh, God gives us various, you know, gifts in the body of Christ, right? And teachers is one of them. Yeah. We need educated teachers to help us, to guide us, because if yeah. we just read, my claim is, if we just read the Bible as, you know, in English, as American Westerners, just read the Bible, you're going to misinterpret it. Absolutely. Because there's so much of the culture that's so different. Yeah, absolutely. And so we need that help, is the bottom line. Well, I, it, it's funny you say it, because, like, I have a lot of friends who are overseas, uh, in, across, like, Italy and Thailand, and um, it's, it's much easier to relate that idea to somebody from a different culture because they understand the differences from culture to culture. I mean, you know, just like, you know, uh, Greek has a lot of verbiage that is completely alien to us Westerners. So does Thai. Thai Thai's verbiage has a lot of symbolism in it, and it doesn't translate in a one-to-one ratio coming over here. Uh, same thing with uh, Portuguese. It's not a standard... You, it, or even or even standard Puerto Rican. Uh, uh, there's a lot of slang involved, and it's not a standard idea of Spanish. It's you have to understand the verbiage of the yeah. country to understand what they're saying. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, totally. And I think one of those elements is precisely this whole, you know, uh, to bring it back to at least what you were talking about or why you had me on the show. <laughs> um, the whole Nephilim issue is, I think Nephilim is one of those things, you know, and I think that w- if you look at the history of the church, the way they interpret it tends to reflect where their, where their society is at, at any particular time, you know, and, um, you know, I would argue that if you go back to the most ancient view of the Nephilim, not just the Bible itself, but even the ancient Jewish literature surrounding the Bible, whether it's, you know, like the Book of Jubilees or, um, you know, the Pseudepigrapha, you know, First Enoch, the Dead Sea Scrolls, this kind of stuff, you'll see a a very clear interpretation of the Nephilim as giants, you know. And yeah. and the word Nephilim in the Bible, you know, it only shows up in two places, Genesis 6 and Numbers 13. And, uh, or is it Numbers 32? Let's see here. 
I, I, I want to get that right because I don't. Yeah, numbers thirteen. So you know, and they and they trans they transliterate it. They don't actually give a translation of the word, partly because I think because they're afraid of writing it. You know, because of <laughs> modern minds read giants, they're going to go what? You know, that can't be. You know, <laughs> so they're afraid, so they just say nephilim. You know, but um, yeah. So, but but if you look at the language and the word and and its Aramaic uh, origins and stuff, it's clearly giants and. Yeah. And uh, but as time goes on, so the ancient world had no problem believing that, and, and so you read all the you know literature, the early church. You know, I, I'm not a big historian. I don't put a lot of a lot of weight on the early church, uh, but it's certainly some evidence, right? You know, oh, yeah. um, and so I don't I don't study that as in depth as I would the Bible and and surrounding literature, but. But nevertheless, you know, I mean, they all basically understood as giants. But then in, in later time periods around, you know, when Augustine comes, Augustine has this fear of this, you know, he comes out of this Gnostic world of weird things and stuff. And so he has a, I think he has this fear of, of well, if, if we talk about these giants and angels having sex with humans, that sounds too much like Gnosticism to me. Yeah. So he comes up with a Sethite interpretation of the sons of God and, and the Nephilim aren't giants and 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 you start to realize that you know a lot of times we will import our own fears and context to protect ourselves from facing the you know the weird things of the Bible and, yeah. and I think that that's important for us to really face. It's you know, funny. What's it's, the reality? It's funny. It's funny you say that the um the the whole idea of people being afraid of that view creating the Sethite view and um the other side of the church. In uh, in the Eastern Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox, they were kind of unaffected by Augustinian views because Aug- Augustine wasn't translated into Greek until the 17th century. And, yeah, and absolutely. So, yeah, and so they were unaffected by that, and so they kind of even uh, Dr. Heiser has said that uh, it's easier for him to do his talks with them because they already have an understanding of it mm. and they already have an already have an understanding of the you know they understand theosis they understand the whole all that side of it is uh, the the divine council like they already have that idea it's already there it's already embedded that's a fair that's a fair point that you make and even as i talk i right i'm always assuming the western church it's like <laughs> right. in the west we we almost don't even know that there's an eastern church and right. that's a very fair point in fact i think even uh you know the ethiopian church uh, accepts first enoch as they part do. of scripture right yeah, they so do. they have a high view of that and enoch first enoch is the book where it really talks very clearly that <laughs> the watchers had sex with women and they had giants you know yeah. And but I but I really have to say though that there's a a rising appreciation within the, the Western Evangelical Church for Book of Enoch. That's you true. know, I mean, I've yeah. written a very positive article for it. I don't accept it as scripture, but I but I acknowledge that it has influenced scripture heavily, oh, and yeah. so therefore we must grant it high respect. And uh, and I think there's a lot more Evangelical Christians who are doing so as well. Um, so I do think that there is a we are becoming more open in the West. Uh, it's usually, it's, it's more the younger generation. You know, the millennials, aren't sad to say, that tend to accept everything, even conspiracy <laughs> theories. Uh, but nevertheless... Like the Earth uh, is flat? A, a positive thing. <laughs> like the Earth being flat? <laughs> yeah. Okay, now this is really interesting you point that out because this is part of the... part of uh, It's all connected because one of the things that Heiser's work has helped me to, to, rec- to discover 
is and and not just Heiser's actually also to be quite honest um biologos uh you know they are the Christian evolutionists. They, you know, they I love uh, evolutionary biologos. creation and stuff. I love biologos. I'm not an evolutionist. <laughs> I'm a, I'm an intelligent design guy, and but I'm very open to it, and I'm I'm I, I don't have any problem. If evolution is true, it's not going to affect the Bible to me. Not at Be- all. And par- it used to because I, I was a young Earth creationist years ago, so I know what it's like. And I I think the problem is is when we tie science to scripture, it. It, it makes us, it, you, you can't accept science unless you're going to give up your faith, right? And But the problem is, is when you understand ancient literature, it had no science. It was not science like we have it, you know? And so it, yeah. there's no scientific intent to it. And once you decouple science from it, you're free then to say, okay, well, if evolution's right, it's not going to affect the Bible because the Bible's not addressing science at all. And that's where the hyperliteralism uh, is coming in. And uh, one of the elements of that I deal with in the Chronicles of the Nephilim as well, by the way, but um, I write about this in my book, When Giants Were Upon the Earth. And, and it was that, you know, I believe that, that the writers of Scripture cl- did clearly have the ancient worldview of the cosmos as a three-tiered universe, you know, like Hades below, and then a flat, limited earth above, and, and in the middle, and then above was a solid dome, and the Rakia, and then there was waters in the heavens above that dome where the yeah. throne of God was. And then, you know, that kind of a thing. And I think that I believe that the that when you do a study on the scripture, and I have this in my in my book, When Giants Were Upon the Earth, I, I show everywhere in the scripture where all these elements of this snow globe cosmos, basically, right? Hmm. Um, that the <laughs> biblical writers had that because that, that's what most of them had. Um and the problem is, is uh, that, you know, so if, if you're a liberal, then you say, see, the Bible's not the word of God because it's not trustworthy. It's, it's not scientifically accurate. But you don't have to conclude that. You can also understand, well, wait a minute. God uses people where they're at. And he's not communicating science to us. He's using these men with the way they see the universe to communicate spiritual truth about God's kingdom. So, you know, the fact that, you know, someone says, oh, uh, you know, everyone worships God below the earth and above the earth. It's like, so what if it's not scientifically accurate? That's not what it's t- trying to teach. God's not yeah. trying to teach science. He's trying to teach spiritual religious truth. And so it doesn't have to be scientifically accurate. It's not teaching that, right? So this I is how agree. I understand it, right? Because I've, as I've grown and learned and tried to understand within their context. But the problem is, is then you get these modern fundamentalists or hyperliteralists who believe that in order for the Bible to be God's word, it has to be literally true in all these aspects. And so therefore, they are now, you know, they're reading Heiser's literature, they, and they're saying, I'll be darned, you're right, the Bible does believe that. <laughs> therefore, it has to literally be true, or else the Bible is not the word of God, right? And so now they're believing and promoting a flat earth, and it's a growing, it's a growing constituency. Oh, it's horrible. Um, it's horrible. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's frightening. Yeah. But you can see how these two things put together are so dangerous yeah. um, of this hyper-literalism and, uh, the, and this false notion that uh, for the Bible to be the Word of God, it has to be scientifically accurate or it's not. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, There's but no, you know, that's is, an assumption. But these are the same people that say that the best translation ever is the KJV. So, I mean... <laughs> I mean, to yeah, be to some be, of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, for you to say that, yeah, the Earth is definitely flat. That automatically tells me that you don't understand Greek or Hebrew textual verbiage. I, I mean, that you've never done any textual criticism, that you've never delved into those cultures and and the, the terminology they used. I mean, it really shows 
like like a couple of scholars have shown, there is a growing anti-intellectual movement, and it's it's bad. It's very very yeah. bad. It's it's putting us hope. It, these are the same people that would have persecuted Galileo, right? So yeah. So let me throw this yeah, question and- in there then. You know, a, a lot of Genesis was written before the time of Christ, correct? Yeah. Were those scriptures and scrolls accessible to Christ? I believe so. So yeah. if that were the case, would Christ have thought during his time that the earth was flat if he read the scripture? I don't think so. What do you think his worldview could have been? I and think- I, before, I know okay. you guys will end up saying, well, I don't <laughs> think it mattered to him. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sure this same argument, the same talk has been around for so long. Yeah. So obviously it matters to some extent. Yeah, I look, I, I, I'm, I'm with N.T. Wright on this. You know, Jesus was a man of his time, and yeah, he's God in the flesh, but he's man. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as man, he was not omniscient. We love N.T. Wright. He was not. I love N.T. Wright. <laughs> I mean, as a human being, he's not omniscient. Yeah. Uh, so you just simply, well, how can he possibly be God then and all that? Well, I don't know. I don't know, but... But uh, and of course now he is obviously, but but uh, but as a human on Earth he was a baby, right? I right. mean he okay. he uh, he bled, he, he pooped, he pooped, <laughs> you know, he cried, and, and, and cry, right? And yeah. and uh, so while I do certainly agree that he was not sinless, uh, I don't think he had to have been scientifically accurate uh, to be you know God on Earth because again that's not what God is concerned about, right? So uh, some Christians would probably call that heresy, but I think it. I think it's heresy if you would would proclaim that a finite, limited, flesh human being would be omniscient. It's literal. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I think that's what's heresy. Uh, How can and I don't think the Bible mind. depicts him that way either, right? Because yeah. it says literally, the Bible says he grew in stature. And wisdom. That's in Luke. That's true. Yeah. So how can you grow in wisdom if you're omniscient? That's true. Good point. You just denied the Bible. So <laughs> if you believe he's omniscient, you denied the Bible. Good point. So yeah. So anyway, that, that my point is is that uh, 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 yeah, I don't. It doesn't doesn't matter what he what he thought because he's a he was a human being in his time. But what he did know accurately was God. Yeah. And how to know God? And uh, he was God in the flesh on the earth. But he's not God in the way that we must demand him to be, right? He doesn't yeah. say, he never says he was omniscient. So you can't, if you say it is, you're, you're imposing on the text. So anyway, yeah, that's, that, that's all good food for thought. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's funny. I had, uh, so I, this, this notion of how we, we bring these assumptions, you know, in my novel, Jesus Triumphant, I deal with this, you know, this bizarre passage in Peter where it talks about how Christ, when he died, he went down and preached to the God, to the spirits in prison. You know, it's like, what is that, right? And I believe like that that was he was literally speaking to the, to the spirits who were prisoned from the flood, and he was proclaiming his triumph, right? And what does that what does that look like? What is that literally? I don't know what that looks like. Um, in terms of history, but I gave up my own version of what, you know, in my fiction of what that might look like. And then he also comes back up, and you remember how I said earlier how Ephesians, it talks about, it quotes Isaiah, and it says that, you know, he leads his train in triumph. And that's a that's a victory train of triumph. That's not a, oh, I'm leading all my fans. He's leading his, his imprisoned enemies in triumph. Mm. And so I have a battle 
where he, Jesus, this is the spiritual realm, right? Now, I, I admit Jesus was a pacifist in the earthly realm. But in the spiritual realm, it describes him very much as a conquering, you know, it uses military language, conquering and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I depict that. I literally have Jesus fighting these spiritual gods of the nations and whipping their butts along with some of the angels, you know. And uh, I, I thought that was kind of fun and, and you know, pushing the envelope a little, a little bit. And so this one guy that I was dealing with, he, he was reading the book and he wrote me, he, just, he was so offended by it. He just says, how dare you? <laughs> Jesus wouldn't have to fight. He would just speak the word and they would all fall down dead, you know. And he says, you're depicting him like he's some kind of comic book warrior. And I go... Yeah. And I go, and then I wrote back, I said, read this passage to me. And, and I wrote, and I, I quoted, uh, let me find it here, Revelation 19. And, and here's what it says about Jesus, the rider and the white horse. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And his eyes are flame of fire and his head many diadems, etc. He's clothed in a robe dripped in blood by the name which is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strike down the nations, rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So I'm like, okay, so you tell me that that's not a comic book warrior hero, <laughs> you know? I mean, of course it is. Now, that's a spiritual picture, but that's my point is it's happened, whatever happens in the spiritual world, I, we don't know literally what it looks like, so I do my best in trying to be true to that that imagery, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's and that's what I try to do in my novels, Chronicles of Nephilim and Chronicles of the Apocalypse. I try to show that spiritual world, and you know, it's it's described in the Book of Revelation and, and elsewhere. It's described in these warrior terms, so you know I do that. You know, I have angels and war and and de- uh, and fallen angels battling each other. Join us for the rest of the conversation in part two.